Act. We're going to be reading out of 1 Corinthians today. If you have a Bible in front of you that you want to snag, uh, this will be on page 1,128, 1128, 1 Corinthians in your pew Bible. That is 1 Corinthians 1, and we'll be reading verses 10 through chapter 2, verse 5. 1 Corinthians 1, 10. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another, so that there may be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I'm thankful that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptized into my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the, intelligent, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ has the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom for God from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Thank you, Craig. So, 
A few years ago, I was with my family in the Adirondacks. We were at this little place that has become one of our favorite places to vacation. And we love it because it's, we get to spend some time by this mountain lake uh, on this beach. And it's, it's perfect because our kids can play uh, in the sand. They can play in the water. There's a, a little playground right next to the beach where they can play as well. And it's, it's actually not very big, so they can't get very far. They can't, like, run away from us. We don't know where they are. We can always see where they are, and, and it doesn't really matter if we see them or not because there's a lifeguard who's watching them, so we almost don't even have to pay attention at all, uh, which is great for a guy like me who just wants to read when he's on vacation and let the kids play. So we were up there uh, at this beach uh, enjoying ourselves. Uh, I had had a great time doing some reading, and finally I realized, you know, I should get up and kind of move around a little bit. And I noticed uh, that people had been taking canoes out on the lake. You could rent them very cheaply. And so I thought, well, this will be, this should be fun. I'll just go take a canoe, go for a little paddle, go for a little ride. And so I took a canoe out and I'm, I'm paddling out across this lake and it's just beautiful, right? The landscape is just mesmerizing. The flowers, the grass, the dirt, I mean, the sky, the clouds, beautiful. And I was so mesmerized by the landscape as I was paddling along that I, I failed to notice uh, a sign um, that uh, was on this bridge that I was passing under, and the, the sign said, warning, danger ahead. And I just completely missed it. I paddle underneath this bridge. I'm paddling along, and, and, and I'm looking at I look out, and all of a sudden, I see something ominous. L- let me tell you a little bit about bodies of water, okay? When you, when, you, when you are looking out over a body of water, there's always a water line. There's that point where the water stops, and then there's something else, right? So if you're at the ocean, you look out over the water, there's a water line. That water line comes at that point when the earth actually curves the, the ocean down out of your vision and gives way to the sky, right? That's where the, the water line is the, on the horizon, uh, so that's what happens when you're at an ocean. Uh, when you're on a river, the water line, you know, it, usually what happens is the river tucks behind a corner, something like that, and now you lose sight of the water. And then on a lake, when you're looking out over a lake, there, the water line comes where it hits the other side, right, of the shore, right, and gives way to the mountains or whatever. Well, I'm looking out over this this lake, and I see the water line, and I see sort of some mountains in the background, but the mountains looked a lot farther away than the water line did. I'm like, what? That doesn't make... So I'm like, let's see what this is. Right? So I'm paddling closer to it, closer to it. It's so weird. And then all of a sudden, it hits me. And I remember driving over that bridge that I had just passed under, and I remembered looking off to the right, to the side that I was now on, having gone under the bridge, and recognizing that there was a massive waterfall as the water toppled over this dam. And the sign had been warning me about this. So, I, you know, I quickly, quickly turn around. I'm panicking. I'm paddling as fast as I can. Fortunately, I noticed this in time to get away. But I, had to, I was thinking, you know, what about, <laughs> what, were those, what were those people thinking that were probably driving over the bridge? As I'm headed towards this, because it's a pretty busy kind of uh, bridge, busy road, 
And what are they thinking? They're thinking to themselves, crazy fool. What is this moron doing paddling towards the waterfall? Today we're beginning a brand new series. Uh, It's good to be back, by the way. Those of you who weren't here last week, I wasn't here last week either. I was passed out in my bathroom. Uh, The flu got me pretty hard. Uh, It is really good to be back. I am incredibly grateful for this church and the way people stepped up in my absence. Literally, it was Sunday morning, about 6.30, I'm getting ready, and I just pass out in my bathroom. I'm like, uh, and I'd had the flu. I probably should have realized that I wasn't going to be able to make it earlier so that I could give Frank DeLala more than a few minutes to prepare, because then he also had to come and help the band. And Frank DeLala, with basically 10 minutes notice, 10 minutes to prepare, uh, preached last Sunday, and I think we could all just give Frank a huge hand. Frank, we are um, just blessed to have you here. Thank you so much for your willingness to step up. And, I mean, really, you know, the interesting thing was I'm like, oh, I'll just call Frank. I wasn't even worried about it. Frank will just take care of it. So, Frank, thank you so much. Katie, thank you. You stepped up. She actually sent Craig home because Craig was sick too, and she took some announcing responsibilities. So, so many of you stepped up, and I'm incredibly grateful for you doing that. But I'm back. It's good to be back, and we are kicking off what was going to be an eight-week series. (laughs) is now a seven-week series. Uh, And it's a series that is coinciding then with this season in the life of the church, a season referred to as Lent, the season that leads up to Easter. Now, Lent is traditionally, it's a season of surrender. It's a time in which we are invited to surrender ourselves more and more to God in the same way that Jesus surrendered himself to his heavenly Father's will. Right, as we approach Easter, we approach that season in which we celebrate Jesus' crucifixion. It's a season in which we reflect upon and celebrate the fact that Jesus completely surrendered himself to the will of God, trusting, trusting that that would lead to life. And we are invited then in the season to do the same thing, to look at those areas of our lives that might not be fully surrendered to God and say, God, I want to give more of myself to you. So we've got a number of things that we're doing to help you uh, in that, that goal of, of surrendering more. In, in the back, in the gathering place where we meet for coffee and whatnot, you'll notice the purple tree. Uh, that is a tree which we put up during different seasons of the year to reflect different aspects of uh, the, the church calendar and the Christian faith. And during this season, it's the tree of surrender. And it's there to encourage you to think about what might God be calling you to surrender to him more and more? And we actually encourage you, there are little, uh, little leaves, little purple pieces of paper that you can, you can fill out say, God, I want to surrender this to you. I want to surrender my fear, maybe, for some of you. Fear of some, I want to surrender that to you. Lord, I want to surrender my idolatry. Maybe you, you'll become convicted of the fact that there's something in your life that you realize is more important to you than God. And you've been pursuing that and, and, and dedicating your life to that, and you're realizing more and more, no, God, I need to surrender this to you. So we invite you to, to, to take advantage of that. It's a great thing to share with your kids. My kids were asking me about it. It's a great way to encourage them to be a part of it as well. So that's one of the ways in which we encourage you to enter into this season of surrender. Um, also, there's a family devotional that is in concert with what I'm preaching on. That is also in the, uh, what do we call that, the the lobby area, 
Yeah, there are uh, devotionals there. We encourage you to take those. There's one for each week. Each week when you come, there will be a new one, which goes with the sermon that was preached. Take that home. Use that with your family. And then finally, uh, we're, we're doing, I'm doing a daily devotional uh, that I'm sending out. We're emailing out to all of you. And I believe, I think, well, I'm not sure how we're going to do it at this point. We're sending it out to everybody. I think what we might do is if you don't want it, then email us and let us know. We'll stop. We won't be offended. We won't be offended if you don't want it. But we're sending that out to everybody on the email list. If you're not on that and would like that, please let us know. That's just a daily devotional that will help you to enter into this season of surrendering. Now, here's the thing. And here's what this series is going to point out to us. Here's what this passage of Scripture points to is this. That as we surrender to God, here's what we have to realize, is that in many ways, surrendering to God will seem foolish. I'm calling you, inviting you to surrender to God, and I want to be upfront with you. This is what this whole series is about. There will be times when it seems like surrendering to God is the most foolish thing that you could possibly do. That's what he's saying in verse 18. The message of the cross is foolishness. To those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He's saying that the normal way of thinking, our normal instinctual way of seeing things, when we look at the cross in comparison, it's going to look absolutely foolish. When we look at surrendering to God, it's going to seem to be absolutely foolish. That when I encourage you to surrender to God, there are going to be times you're going to feel like, Kevin, are you telling me to paddle towards the waterfall? That's what it's going to feel like. The more we surrender to God, it's going to be like, why? I need, no, I need, our instincts, right, are to turn around and paddle with everything that we've got, with our career, with our finances, with our whatever resources that we can muster up. We took, and we're just trying to paddle away, and what I'm telling you is that the more you surrender to God, the more it's going to seem like you're heading towards that waterfall. Surrendering to God, there's a foolishness to it. There's a foolishness to the way of God, and that's what we're going to be exploring throughout this series. Today, we're just looking generally at this foolishness, what sort of emerges here in this first uh, section of 1 Corinthians. And what we see here is uh, God calls foolish people. Or maybe another way of putting it is that God is foolish in the way that he chooses people. The way God chooses people, it, it, it doesn't make any sense. It's foolish. And here's what we discover here. When God chooses people and he calls people for his purposes, and this is what emerges here in verse 26. This is a theme that that pops up throughout Scripture. Verse 26, brothers, think of what you were when you were called, right? So let's talk about that. When you were called, right? So he's just assuming that they realize this. You, he's talking to this church in the city of Corinth, you were called by God. At the heart of, of biblical faith is this realization that God calls people. He, he, he chooses people. He calls them. And, and actually what he calls them for is actually to bless others. Right, this is, we could spend a lot of time on this one. This one I'm talking about here is what's sometimes known as the doctrine of election. And we could spend a lot of time talking about this and the misconceptions about it. Sometimes people think of what it means to be chosen by God is that I'm chosen over and against all those other poor people that weren't chosen. I'm chosen for salvation over and against those people who weren't chosen for salvation. That's actually not 
the picture that we have. What it means to be chosen by God is that you're chosen to go and bless others, to go and be the means through which salvation comes to other people. But that's what we are. We are called. We are, we are chosen. We, we find this sort of theme throughout the scriptures. We're starting with Adam. Adam is called. Adam representing humanity, and he's actually called in order to bless all of creation. Humanity was called and given the purpose of blessing creation. Humanity was called with the purpose of cultivating and taking care of God's creation. Adam messed it up. Humanity got messed up. So then God called Jacob. First called Abraham. I'm skipping over generation here. Called Jacob and, and called Jacob and his people Israel to redeem humanity so that humanity could redeem creation. But it's always the calling, the calling of Israel, the calling of Jacob was not just for them. It's to be the means through which humanity then receives God's blessing. So we're, we're called, let me put it a different way. If you are here today, might I suggest to you, you're here today because God has a purpose for you. God has a purpose for you. It's not an accident that you're here. Something brought you here. Something drew you here. Suggest to you that you're here because God has a purpose for you, and it's a purpose for you to bless others. God calls us for a purpose. He calls people, but here's the thing. <laughs> the, the criteria that God uses to choose people for his calling is ridiculously foolish. It's foolish. Because here's, here's what it is. We are chosen because of God's graciousness, not because of our own impressiveness. God doesn't choose you because you're impressive. God chooses entirely on the basis of his grace. This is what Paul's getting at here in verses 26 through 27. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He's choosing the, the, the weak, the, the broken, as a way of showing, I choose on the basis of my grace, not because there's anything impressive about you. It's what you gotta I was thinking about this um, this week, right? I mean, I, I, I'm a minister. I feel called by God. And I was reflecting on how the fact that God has called me is not a compliment. If you've been called by God, don't take it as a compliment. He's not complimenting you that he's called you to himself. He's not, he's not complimenting. It's almost like an insult. Like you're weak. You, you need my help, right? God calls on the basis of his grace, not on the basis of our impressiveness, right? I mean, it's, it's totally different. It's like <clears throat> I was thinking about when I was a kid at recess, <clears throat> go out to play soccer. There'd be like team captains. All the kids would line up, and they'd choose who they wanted to be on their team, right? And if you were chosen, that was a compliment. When God calls you, it's not a compliment. 
God's not calling you because you're impressive. God calls entirely on the basis of his grace. This is why Christians should never have an attitude of superiority. There can never be a posture of superiority from somebody who really gets the gospel because they know they weren't chosen on the basis of their impressiveness. Um, so there's a, I don't know if you guys have seen the Lego movie, the original Lego movie came out in like 2014. I've actually never seen it, but I've heard it many times uh, because it's one of the few DVDs that we actually have. People don't have DVDs anymore, but we've got like playing a DVD in the car when we're going on a long trip and we want to keep the kids occupied. Only have a few movies, so every time we go somewhere, the kids watch the Lego movie in the back, and I can hear. I've never seen it, but I've heard it a million times. And it's hilarious even just to listen to. It's an absolutely fantastic movie. Let me tell you about the Lego movie. So I'll see if I can get it right here. Uh, so the Lego movie, it's about, well, Legoland, the Lego universe. And the Lego universe is under the control of Lord Business, evil Lord Business. And he's evil for a lot of reasons, but it seems like the main reason, at least that I picked up from listening to it, is that he insists that all of the Lego creations be created by following the instructions. Just this absolutely rigid control. No creativity, no independent thinking. No, no, you've got to follow the instructions. And so these poor Legos, they're captivated in this instruction world, this tight control world. But there's a prophecy. Somebody prophesies that, that there's going to be this master builder who's going to come up and, and set them free from the control of Lord Business and, and, and set, set free the, the ability to use creativity and, and to go in independent ways. This master builder is going to come and save the Lego universe. And it turns out the name of this individual whom the prophecy seems to point to is this little Lego guy named Emmett Brukowski. Emmett Brukowski is the chosen one. And what's amazing about this Emmett Brukowski, and what I love about the movie, is there is nothing impressive about him at all. I love it. There's just one scene when the, the, the bad guys are trying to find Emmett Brukowski, and they, they use facial recognition you know, software. But they can't find his face because his face is just so normal. It's so bland. There's nothing impressive about him that their facial recognition software doesn't even identify him. And there's this point somewhere in the movie where I guess things aren't going well for the good guys. Again, from what I've heard. <laughs> Something's not going well for the good guys. And so Emmett Bukowski finally kind of gives this speech. And this is what he says. Okay, I hope we put this up here. Yeah, here we go. This is him talking to his friends. Yes, it's true. I may not be a master builder. I, have, I may not have a lot of experience fighting or leading or coming up with plans or having ideas in general. In fact, I'm not all that smart. And I'm not what you'd call the creative type. Plus, generally unskilled. Also, scared and cowardly. I know what you're thinking. He is the least qualified person in the world to lead us. And you are right. I love it because it sounds like Paul talking to the church in Corinth. Tyra, there's nothing impressive about him. It, it sounds like Paul, when he talks about himself, later on in another letter to the church in Corinth, he talks about himself. Listen, listen to what he says. He says, 
He's talking about what others have said about him in 2 Corinthians 10.10. 10. For some say his letters, Paul's letters, are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive, and his speaking amounts to nothing. Looks like Emmett Burkowski was called to lead the early church. Because God doesn't call us on the basis of our impressiveness. He calls entirely on the basis of his grace. Now think about how foolish that is, you see? That's not how our world works. Can you imagine that? If, if that's how our, how our society worked, if, if, if uh, well, you, you go to apply for college, and they don't really care what's on your resume. They're not impressed by what you, they're not interested in whether or not you impress them or not. Can you imagine the NFL draft? If they just randomly picked people? No, I don't really care what, how good you are at football. No, 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 we're going to, you know what, we're going to select you for our team on the basis of grace. It's foolishness. It's foolishness. Friends, your unimpressiveness is not a hindrance to God. Your unimpressiveness is not a hindrance to God. The foolishness of God. Okay, we're looking at the foolishness of God, the foolish ways in which he chooses people. Then we also see here foolish talk. God does not depend on style over substance to accomplish his goals. God does not depend on style over substance to accomplish his goals. In our society, most of the time, the way you accomplish your goals is style over substance. Isn't that true? I mean, we live in this sort of style over substance uh, world. And Paul says no. And he says this in a couple different places he's getting at here. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize. We'll come back to that later in the series. But to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And then here in verse two, or chapter 2, verse 1, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. He's saying, I didn't come here. I didn't impress you with the way that I talk. I didn't come here and impress you with the way that I can use my style and kind of cover over the substance. No, I'm not going to do that. That's not the way that we operate. He's saying, no, it's, we're not going to do what the world does, which is elevate style over substance. Now, let me talk about what's, what's going on here when he says this. Within that uh, historical context, you've got to remember, this is taking place 2,000 years ago. Right, the TV has been around since, I don't know, like 70 years, something like that. Uh, the Internet's only been around, I don't know how many years. The printing press. This is 1,500 years before the printing press. 80% at least of the people are illiterate. Uh, these are people that they, they're not going to get the newspaper in the morning. They're, they're not going to be able to look up, you know, online what's going on in the world. They're not going to get a lot of entertainment. There's no Netflix. And so in that society, what they got really excited about was when some speaker would come to town. And start talking, you know, start, you know, whatever, sharing the news or coming with some sort of new idea or philosophy. And they got really excited about this, and they would, they would start to really gravitate towards certain personalities. And, and this is what Paul's identifying early on. He's saying this is happening in the church, he's saying. 
He's saying some are following Apollos, some are following Cephas. They love to gravitate towards certain personalities that would come and speak and get all riled up. But what, in that culture, again, it was style over substance. There's this great fascination with Greek rhetoric and you know, ability to, to get people to believe something without any sort of substance involved. Is it not true that we live in a style over substance world today? When you look at our the people who get contracts as news commentators, the ones who get the popular shows, the shows everybody watches, it's style over substance. The podcasts that get all the ratings, it's style over substance. Right? We, we see this happening. We've seen this happening in, in our political world for years, whether it's, whether it's President Slick Willie Clinton sort of talk his way out of anything, or it's President Trump who can rally up his base with a provocative five-word tweet. It's all style over substance. I don't know if you guys saw the commercials for the Super Bowl this year. I mean, if ever there was an example of style over substance, it is the commercials that you watch on the Super Bowl. Uh, Doritos are, are little like crackers with cheese on them, right? Okay, well, the, you know, the commercial of the Super Bowl didn't really say anything about that. It just had little Nas X or whatever his name is and Billy Ray Cyrus singing Old Town Road. What on earth does that have to do with a chip? Audi, Audi, however you say it, had a commercial for one of their new cars, a new sedan. And they had the driver singing the theme song to Frozen. What does Elsa have to do with an Audi sedan? <clears throat> Budweiser. Budweiser did this whole thing about the greatness of American, the typical American, the heroism of the typical American. And, and, and then they put, you know, and then drink Budweiser. Like, what on earth does Budweiser have to do with heroic, typical Americans? There's nothing heroic about Budweiser. It's terrible. I mean, there's just style over substance. And why do they do it? Because it works. Style over substance is what sells. Imagine if you went into an advertising agency trying to get a job. Like, what's kind of your philosophy of advertising? Well, we just want them to know what the product is about. You think you're going to get hired by that advertising agency? Style over substance. Paul says, look, I'm not going to come in here with style over substance. This is foolishness. In our society, you want to accomplish something, that's the way that you have to go. Now, okay, when we pull this all together, right, this foolishness of God, he calls foolish people. He, he's not going to go with the style over substance kind of deal here. The question is, what is commendable at all about what Paul has to offer? What does he have to offer that is commendable to these people? In what way is this little community in Corinth going to accomplish anything? And here's what it is. It's so, it's so simple. Paul's saying, listen, our hope 
is entirely in God. There's nothing that we can do. There's nothing we can say or do or by our own ingenuity, by our own effort. There's nothing that we can do that's going to accomplish anything of substance. I mean, this is the great wisdom of God. It's this critique of all human wisdom that thinks that we can engineer or do anything of substance. At the end of the day, the only one who can do anything that really counts or lasts is God. It's the only thing commendable about Jesus. There's nothing about Jesus that the people in that first century could be drawn to. The Roman world, first of all, Jesus was Jewish. And that was very much considered a second-class race. Not only was Jesus Jewish, but he was executed as a criminal. This, this was a society in which the, you listened to the popular people. You, you listened to the people that worked the system. You listened to the people that rose above, and Jesus was the opposite of that. N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar, says this about Jesus and the story, the message of Jesus. <clears throat> He says, this was and is the craziest message anybody could imagine. This wasn't a smart new philosophy. It was madness. It wasn't an appeal to high culture. It was news of an executed criminal from a despised race. So what did Jesus have to offer? Jesus demonstrated what it looks like to completely put your hope. Even to the point, as Paul says in Philippians 2, he was obedient to God. He trusted in God, even to the point of the cross. He said, I'm not even going to try to use my power, my strength to get out of this. I am going to completely put my hope and my trust in my heavenly Father. Friends, when we sit in this, it's scary. But it is also incredibly freeing. I'll tell you that. It's freeing for me. It's frightening, but it's freeing. It's freeing for me to know that, yeah, I can work hard. I can prepare a message. I can meet with people and, and, and try to listen to them and say the right thing when, when they're coming to me with whatever their concerns are. I can put forth all of this effort, but you know what? In the end of the, at the end of the day, it's not up to me. It's not up to me. That, you know, you know, and, and the reality is, see, God, God will accomplish his goals through my efforts and abilities, and he will accomplish his goals in spite of my lack thereof. It's not like we're saying we just shouldn't try. Right? It's not like I should, well, I shouldn't try to hone my craft as a preacher or try to learn how to be a, a better counselor. Or, it's not like I shouldn't use my abilities. I mean, Paul later on in this very letter talks about how we're gifted differently. God gives us different abilities and gifts, and we should lean into those. 
But again, always remembering they come from God in the first place. And God, he will use your giftings and your abilities. He'll use what you've got. He'll work through that, and he'll also work in spite of your lack thereof. And I know this because I've had plenty of times when I'll preach a sermon that I thought was amazing. I probably, like, walked, walked out here with a little, like, yeah. And I'm like, nothing, like, nobody was, like, nothing happened with it. And then I'll, like, come preach something I think's a total bomb. And I'm not kidding you, somebody will be, like, crying because of how God touched them. Again, it's not that, like, well, I should just stop trying. No, God uses our abilities and our efforts, but at the end of the day, it's not up to me. It's not up to you. God wants you to work hard. God wants you to use your gifts and your abilities, but guess what? It's not up to you. He doesn't want you to rely on your own strength because your own strength can't accomplish anything. Friends, in what ways right now are you just relying on your own strength? And you might be strong. You might be good. You might be gifted. Guess what? If you're relying on that at the end of the day, it's not going to accomplish anything. Our hope is entirely in the power of God. Friends, what is this foolishness, the foolish things, the foolishness of the cross? What is this? This is an invitation to rest entirely in the power of God. When I was up in the Adirondacks, (coughs) heading towards this what proved to be a waterfall. And when I saw what it was, I, I, I quickly turned around and I paddled using all of my effort to get away from it. And, and, and then in retrospect, I thought to myself, that almost feels like a metaphor for life. How many of us, our entire life feels like we're being pulled towards this waterfall? And we're just doing everything we can, using whatever resources we have, using our education, using our money, using our personality, using whatever kind of, whatever we've got. These are our oars, and we're just paddling as hard as we can. The foolishness of the cross saying, you know what, you can let go. You can let go. You don't have to run from that. You don't have to run from the despair and the sadness and the heartache. You don't have to run from that. Because even if you go into it, we have a God who didn't just send Jesus to the cross. He rose him from the grave. This is why it all culminates in Easter. This is why this surrendering of God is something that we do in this season that leads up to Easter because as we surrender more and more of ourselves to God and place ourselves entirely in his power, that's when we come to understand what Easter is really all about. Will you pray with me? Dear God, we come before you this morning and we praise you. We praise you for your grace. We praise you that you look down upon us in all of our weakness and you love us. You long to save us and you long 
to use us to bless others. God, I pray that in this place right now, God, we might be honest about those areas of our lives that we have not surrendered to you. God, may we take those oars out of the water. Trust in you. Maybe we do this for the very first time. Maybe for the first time in our lives this morning, we want to surrender ourselves to you. Maybe for some of us, we've, we've surrendered in part before, but we realize how far off track we've gotten. God, may this be a morning in which we give ourselves to you. And may this be a season in which we increasingly surrender more and more of ourselves to you. We pray this in Jesus' name.